Hi, and welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I am Pamela Stodge. Today, Dr. Hoyt and I are super excited to be speaking with Dr. Grimm, who is the Director of National Programs for FAIR. I know at my house, we're not yet thinking about that college transition, but honestly, it's going to be here before we know it, and it makes me so sad. But the reason I'm so excited Chrissy's going to be here is because in this two-part series, she's going to talk to us and help us with getting our kiddos ready to tackle that world of food allergies when they transition off to college. So in this episode, you're going to hear Christy's first two out of five tips for, for, for preparing for our kiddos' transition to college. I'm so excited. I think you guys are really going to like this. So sit back and take a listen. Welcome to Food Allergy and Your Kiddo with Dr. Alice Hoyt, the podcast about demystifying food allergies, diminishing allergy anxiety, and taking back control. Let's navigate this challenge together with evidence-based information, scientific research, and tried and proven practices. And now, here's your host, board-certified allergist and immunologist specializing in food allergy, Dr. Alice Hoyt. Hello, and welcome to the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alice Hoyt, joined today by my amazing co-host, Miss Pamela Lestage. How are you doing today, Pam? I'm good. How are you today? I'm excited. Pam, I'm so excited because we have today Christy Grimm, Director of National Programs with FAIR, Food Allergy Research and Education. And she is here today to talk about FAIR's college program. Hello, Christy. Hello. Nice to be here. We're so happy that you are here today. Um, and I think most of our listeners know about FAIR, know about foodallergy.org. It's an amazing, amazing resource with just so much content, so, so much great information for food allergy families. Um, I mean, it's a juggernaut and it's amazing. And so one of the reasons I'm really excited to have you on today is because you're delightful. Um I first met Christy, it was a few years ago, um, actually when I was an allergy fellow and um, I met Christy and we had lunch in DC and um, I'm just so excited to reconnect and be able to sort of showcase um, one of the amazing people that makes FAIR the amazing organization that it is and also learn more about the college program and how, how families can navigate life with food allergy when it comes to college planning. So thanks so much for being here. Of course. Happy to. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved with FAIR and um, and sort of your day-to-day when it comes to being the director of national programs? Sure. Um, so I actually joined FAIR about seven and a half years ago. So it is it has been a minute. Um, and I started my very first title at FAIR was actually college outreach manager. And that is because I was hired initially to create best practices for colleges and universities looking at food allergies on their campuses. Uh, so FAIR had just received a gift to help create this best practice guide, bring colleges and universities together. And I was hired to sort of kick that process off. Uh, Since then, we are, I know you call this a juggernaut, which I so, so appreciate, um, but we're still actually a pretty small organization in the grand scheme of things with fewer than 50 people that work there. And so small but mighty is what I like to call our team. Mustard seed. 
Yeah, especially the team focused on um, the education programming. And so there's just a few of us. And so as happens with a fairly small organization, roles expand over time. So I was hired for that. Uh, And since then, I have actually taken on a lot of our educational and training programming for teens. I run our teen programs, um, young adults, and then also industry professionals that support the food allergy audience. So I think anybody managing a food allergy or managing a food allergy for a loved one knows you really rely on a lot of people to keep you and your family safe. Um, So we create a lot of resources and training materials focus towards those audiences from food services to teachers to healthcare professionals who may not specialize in food allergy, but still see food allergy patient. Um, So I sort of, in a nutshell, focus on all of those diverse audiences and how we can best make sure that everybody's equipped and educated and knows how to manage this process. That's amazing. And I love that today with us focusing on the college program, it kind of goes back to your roots with the organization um, of working with colleges. It does. And so even though my role has expanded, college is still a key part of it. Uh, we do a lot in the college space. And I will say it's, it's I, I call the college program my baby because it's the thing that I, I started at FAIR. I've run it my entire seven years here. I think they would have to like pry it from my cold dead hands. Uh, <laughs> I just, I love it. And it's been so rewarding to see how much things have changed from when we started this process And to see, I mean, we started working with teens who were in high school still. Some of them are graduated from college. They're out in the world being successful adults, and they're now volunteering and mentoring kids who are in high school. So to see the whole process come sort of full circle and keep growing has been really, really rewarding. It's really amazing. And for our listeners, a little bit of recap of the uptick in food allergy. It was first noticed uh, specifically a peanut allergy in the late 90s, and Then we started having more and more kids who were going through elementary school um, in the last couple decades because of that uptick in peanut allergy. Sometimes the question I get asked is, well, Dr. White, why is, you know, why is there peanut allergy now when I was in school, you know, 30 years ago, like we didn't have kids with food allergies and they, they didn't to the extent that we do now. Um, And so now, because we have more kids who have food allergies that are diagnosed earlier in life or um, when they're, when they're younger kiddos, and then a lot of times with peanut allergy, they don't outgrow it. Sometimes egg, milk, other food allergies are not outgrown either. Now those kids are getting to high school and college. And now we've been through, um, about over a decade or so, um, I'm doing the math right in my head, which I'm an allergist, not a mathematician, um, of kids who have, who have food allergy, who are now going to college. And it's just so wonderful that there are organizations like FAIR that are thinking about that transition of care. And that I, that's, I think, what we're going to get into today with some of your um, Christie's top five of things that families need to do to prepare for college. And it's, it's so important now that colleges be aware of food allergy and help students navigate it. Um, Not just because there's more and more students who have it, but also because of the risks that are involved if it is not appropriately managed. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if you talk to colleges, they too have noticed the increasing numbers. So that's one of the first things I usually start a conversation with is, do you feel like you have more students with food allergies? I've never heard the answer no to that. It's just, they recognize it. They've seen this huge influx. It's part of what's prompted them to be more interested and engaged in coming up with better systems. Because the more kids they have coming through, all of a sudden the old systems that they had where it's like, and we've got five students, we'll just sort of deal with that individually. That doesn't Mm -hmm. work when you're accommodating 400, 500, 600 students with food allergies. So it's, it's definitely shifted. I think the college landscape. Absolutely. And let's, let's dig into your, to your top five, um, stops on the road to college when it comes to food allergy. What is the first thing, um, that, that you recommend that families do when it comes to dealing with let let's let's go to college kiddo let's <laughs> let's think about it it's going to be great college is great so so actually if you're not thinking about this when your kid is pretty young um so you know don't start thinking about this when your child is 16 17 and you're actually starting to screen colleges what we want you to do is be thinking about this way way before that when your children are much younger And thinking of it as sort of a gradual shift towards involving them more and more in their own food allergies and their own food allergy accommodations. And that can be anything from, you know, they need to start taking responsibility for carrying their own epinephrine because you're not going to be there to remind them when they're in college. So they need to get used to that early on so that by the time they're 18 and they're on a campus, it's just second nature that they're grabbing that epinephrine on their way out the door Um, to You're at a restaurant, I think, particularly if you have a shy child, it's very easy to order for them or to step in and do that. I was a very, very shy kid myself, so this would have been me, so I get it. Um, but if you do that, then they're on a college campus and they've never had to actually be the one asking questions or communicating their order. And they will have to be because you won't be there for them. So sort of pushing them in that direction. And even by the time they're in middle school or high school, you can start accommodating or including them in accommodation conversations with their school. So if you're having a 504 plan, they don't have to necessarily lead it. They don't have to be the sole advocate. Of course, you're there with them, but they can be there, they can participate, they can speak up a little bit for themselves again, so that by the time they're in college and they're an adult and expected to take responsibility for their own food allergy, it's not like this deer in headlights. They've never had to do it before. They have a little bit of experience under their belt. For, I love this. Yes, Pam. Me too. For my daughter's 11, she just started middle school. She'll be 12 soon. And we started... I noticed that she never took her EpiPen anywhere. It was always us, you know, or her epinephrine injector. And it got to the point where I guess I've told this story before, but I think it was around the summer of fifth grade where we started um, realizing that she needed to, she needed to be able to grab her stuff and take it with her. And so we would, you know, remind her, here's your Epi bag, please take it with you. And then right before middle school started, we made sure that it was always with her where it just became second nature for her to just grab it so much so that now rarely ever do we have to say, do you have your EpiPen? Obviously we watch for it, you know, like we kind of look at her make sure that she has it. Um, and, you know, I mean, we all forget things and and there have been times where we've had to turn around in the, in the driveway and go get it for her. But do you have, um, is that a good age, do you think, around the middle school age or maybe around fourth or fifth grade? Or is it just kind of like, you know, your child, when should it be? 
Yeah, I think it's pretty dependent on on children. So I've seen kids even younger than that that are sort of mm-hmm. self-caring and responsible. A lot of people like the little like door stopper signs you can put on the door so they have to see it on their way out. Though I think we sometimes, yeah, so those are great. <laughs> but then I also think like, how many times do I have something that I pass by every day that I don't really think about? Um, I but I like the yeah. door stopper because they move around a little when you when you move the doorknob. Sometimes they maybe fall off. So I think it's a little bit better than like a poster on a wall. But we don't have that. That's great. I'm gonna have to look into that. We just have like a little poster that when like right above the little doorknob. And uh-huh. so you kind of have to look at it. But that was kind of my fear at first was, you know, we have a sort picture of frame. Yeah, we have a picture frame yeah. right next to the door that I never look at. Um, but mm-hmm. that's a good idea. Okay. The other thing yeah. I want to bring up here is when we talked with uh, my friend and colleague, Dr. Brian Schroer, uh, a few months ago, and we'll link to that in on foodallergyinyourkiddo.com, we talked about shared medical decision-making. And I know uh, Dr. Dave Stukas, who we also interviewed on the show a few months ago, has has worked in this area too. And specifically working in transitioning from the pediatric care model to the adult care model, where in the pediatric care model, it's really mom and dad handling the medications, appointments, all those things. And then the adult care model is it's the the kiddo is now an adult and now the adult has to manage everything. Um, and so making that transition an effective one, a personalized one for that kiddo. Um, and I just find that to be so important for the allergist and the parents and the kiddos to, to work, to find, okay, what, what is our goal? When, when do we want to start self-caring and be really responsible for that? And I'll tell you as an allergist, I see some kiddos are ready for it younger than other kiddos. Mm -hmm. Um, Hence getting back to personalized medicine and really highlights how important your first point is here, Christy, about you can't start too early. Yeah, I think too, it gives, you know, when you're talking about having the kid, um, the child, you know, order their own food and, and be present with the nurse or the school whenever they're doing their plans, it gives them a voice, you know, it kind of gives mm-hmm. them that confidence because my daughter is painfully shy when it comes to ordering food or, you know, talking to the nurse when she's always with me when we go and talk to the school, but, you know, she kind of stays quiet. And I've noticed that when we have almost forced her to order her own food and say, Hey, I have an allergy. Um, even though we've done it as well. Um, it, I've noticed a shift sort of in her, um, confidence level when we're out in a public situation that she has to stand up and say it, not because she's, ashamed of it, or she doesn't want people to know, she will yell it from the top of her lungs. Hey, I have an allergy. She wants people to know, but you know, sometimes speaking up for yourself can be a little scary. Mm -hmm. So that brings us sort of to number two, I think, um, Christy, what's, what's number two on your roadmap to being prepared for college? So number two, and this will be as you get a little bit closer to college, so you don't necessarily have to be doing this at 11 or 12, but as you're getting into that last year or so before you you make that transition, is start thinking about your day-to-day, um, maybe take a week or two and start like actually listening out how do you live your life and what does what feels best to you. And this will be somewhat dependent on your personality. So Pam, you said that your child is very shy. So what she needs and feels like she needs to sort of safely navigate college might be different than a teenager who's super outgoing and comfortable talking to a hundred different people. Um, so thinking about even, you know, are you comfortable trying a variety of foods? Do you prefer that? Or do you prefer to have, these are the 20 things that I know are safe for me. And that's what I prefer 
um, to sort of stick with and focus on. And I prefer these brands that I already am confident in. Uh, do you feel like you would want to live with a roommate because you really need that social piece? Or do you think you would do much better living in a single dorm room by yourself because you can control everything coming into your room? So just start thinking about those pieces, how it fits with your lifestyle, um, and start making a list of the things that like in a perfect world, this is what the college would have in place. And one sort of example of that is if you are someone who really thrives on having a variety of food and you love talking to people at restaurants and you love conversing with the chef or the waiter, maybe you would do really well at a college that has these really robust cross-contact procedures in place and you could walk into any different food service place on their campus. You can talk to the person taking your order. You can get something that you feel good about. If you're someone who's a little bit more shy and a little bit more cautious, maybe you actually prefer a school that has an area that's designated free from certain allergens with one of them being yours. So you don't have to have that long evolved conversation each time. And you can just go in confidently order, get your food without sort of standing out and having these long conversations. So just start to think about those kinds of things, what in a perfect world you would want your college environment to look like. Hi there, this is Alexis from the Hoyt Institute of Food Allergy. Did you know that the Institute is the official sponsor of the Food Allergy and Your Kiddo podcast? And did you also know that you are now able to connect with Dr. Hoyt directly? That's right. We are now offering food allergy office hours for parents. These one-on-one -on -one virtual sessions are available for parents all across the country. It's an educational session, not an office visit, where you can ask all of your food allergy questions and finally get answers. It's as comfortable as having a cup of coffee with your bestie. Simply click the link in the show notes to schedule and mention this ad. We are so, so excited to connect with parents across the globe with this new service. Okay, now back to Pam and Dr. Hoyt. Um, in terms of roommates, have you found when speaking to colleges that that's something that they can um, ask for, you know, asking for someone who would be comfortable living with a person with a food allergy? So yes and no, it sort of depends on the school. I will okay. say you don't see a lot of schools that are able to match up based on allergies. So like if, if what your preference is, is I would really like to live with somebody else with a peanut allergy. I have a peanut allergy. I'd really like to live with somebody else with a peanut allergy. There are some schools that can do that and will do that. Okay. There aren't that many of them. Um, what a lot of schools will do is they, and this isn't specific to food allergy. This is just how they operate in general, but people who are moving in with roommates on a college campus will have what they would call like roommate agreements or some sort of roommate contract. And, you know, I'm a morning person, you're an evening person, I'm super messy, you're super clean. What they want is to sort of make these this an environment where everybody feels comfortable and safe. And so they have these agreements that sort of outline room rules. And schools will incorporate food allergies into those. So maybe they can't match you up with someone with a peanut allergy, but what they can do is help you incorporate what the rules are around peanut in your dorm room into okay. that agreement so that everybody's on the same page. Yes, you can bring in peanuts. No, you can't. Yes, you can, but they have to stay in this closet on your side of the room. You can't put them in the microwave, whatever those things are that would make you feel safe and comfortable. Um, right. that's, that's usually a little bit more how they would handle that. 
Okay. And okay. Christy, are there best practices? I know we talked a little bit, I think offline about uh, developing best practices and, and you did a lot of work in that area that colleges should follow um, and that y'all might have available on your website so that parents kind of know what the other side might be thinking. Yeah, so we do have actually a best practices guide governing the things outside of dining on our our website. So it looks at disability services and their role and things to think about when they're looking at documentation and policies and procedures there. I want to interrupt you for one second, because when I first started working with a university regarding food allergy, um, I was I was kind of taken aback. I shouldn't say I'm surprised by something because at this point, I'm not surprised with how different things regarding food allergy are managed. But a lot of times the pathway starts in the Office of Disabilities, which Mm -hmm. I think is sort of um, off-putting or kind of like, huh, um, to families who have kids with food allergies. Because even though some some families do have a 504 plan, I don't know many families who think of their kiddo um, who has a food allergy as needing to go through an Office of Disability. But I just want our listeners to know that that is often sort of a first step. Um, and maybe think of it as differing abilities. Um, it's just yeah. sort of a first step for a lot of colleges where, and, and the folks in these offices tend to be amazing people. So if, if you, when you start navigating, looking for college, you're, you're like, Oh wait, office of disabilities. Wait, like, don't let that be like a bad taste in your mouth. Um, the yeah. people who work in those, in those offices are typically really fantastic people. That's true. And I could, I could actually talk about that for hours probably. And I would say like a couple of things. One, disability, it's it's not a dirty word. I mean, it, this is a legal protection that this is the legal thing that entitles you to have full inclusion on your university campus. So it's important. Um, I know I've, I've heard that hesitation many, many times, so I totally get it. Um, I actually have a nephew with Down syndrome, so I'm also very like Disability is not a bad thing. These people are not less than. It is just it is just a legal designation to protect you and make sure that you have access to the things that you need to. Mm-hmm. Um, so that side of it. And then also just understand, to your point about disability services professionals, they are some of the most wonderful, caring people you'll ever meet. Um, not on every campus do they actually handle food allergy accommodations. So you may find that you get to your school. and Well, hopefully before you get to your school, you've reached out. And they're like, oh, no, we don't do this. You go straight to dining. So that happens. Not every campus has this kind of setup, but it is the best practice setup um, for a variety of reasons, one of which is sometimes they include medical documentation. And you really don't, you just don't want dining services collecting your medical documentation. That really should be a qualified department. And that would be the disability services office. So, so yes, they're a valuable resource. Start there. Um, and if the school directs you elsewhere, okay, but, but they should be your first stop. Okay. I interrupted you, Christy. You were talking about um, the best practices and what you guys have on your website, which we'll put a link to at foodallergyandyourkiddo.com. Yes. Uh, So we have that best practice guide for them. And that's really to help the school think about this more broadly than a dining services issue, because it is, of course, it's a dining services issue. This impacts how you eat, the food you can have, the safety in the dining halls, but it's actually bigger than that. Um, so, So we have those best practices for them. And then we actually have an entire audit tool for dining services that is designed for them to step by step by step go through their own facility and figure out where their danger points are. So rather than them just thinking like, oh, you know what, we're going to have 
we can make you food in our, in our deli. We'll just, we have gluten-free bread. We can just leave the cheese off. But you know, if, if you have a child with food allergy, or if you have a food allergy, you know, that's not always enough. They have to think about cross contact. So we have this entire guide that really walks them through step-by-step how to prepare it safely and hopefully brings their procedures up to um, a higher quality as well. And let me define cross-contact before we go to step four um, for some of our listeners. Cross-contact is basically when a utensil or a surface or a food comes into contact accidentally um, with an allergen. So probably the, the best thing to think about would be like using a toaster for bread that contains wheat, but then also using it for gluten-free bread. You can see how there would be cross-contact there or um, using the same knife in a jar of peanut butter that you then use in a nut-free butter. Um, There's clearly still going to be peanut butter on that knife. Um, So that is what cross-contact is. And we like to say cross-contact as opposed to cross-contamination because contamination sort of implies microbial yuckiness um, and, and contact is more it's contacting something that it's really more of an incidental didn't mean to do that. Right. And then the other thing is cross-contamination. You know, if you cook it, like it's, it's usually going to be safe. So raw chicken came into contact with some veggies, but if you cook the veggies enough, you're, you're killing the bacteria. Whereas with cross-contact, not necessarily the case. Um, So we just sort of push for total avoidance of any sort of contact, but that's exactly right. Christy, great. You guys, I love this. Okay. So at the beginning of this episode, I thought that I wasn't ready to start thinking about the transition to college, but little did I know I needed to, um, because as Christy said in her first tip, we have to start prepping our kiddos to take responsibility for their food allergy journey early, which makes total sense because then when it is time for them to leave the house and go to college, They are able and ready and confident enough to take on their own food allergy responsibility on their own. You know, when mom and dad aren't around, they have to be able to speak up for themselves. So such a great tip. Also, her second tip was really great, which was that we need to help our college-aged child to think about how they want their day-to-day life to look like so that they can live their best life in college. They can feel safe. They can feel like they are able to tackle all of the things, even while having a food allergy, it shouldn't stop you from living your best college life, but we have to have a plan in place. So just amazing tips. I can't wait for all of you to hear her last three tips on next week's episode because they are just as helpful. Remember, Dr. Hoyt is an allergist, but she is not your allergist. So talk to your allergist about anything that you heard on today's podcast. Also visit our website, foodallergyandyourkiddo.com to get links to anything that we have talked about on this episode. And as always, God bless you and God bless your family. (laughs) 